0: with my sister's passing, I've not relinquished my proxy role. My job was to make decisions about her life when she couldn't speak for herself. She cannot speak for herself now because she's no longer here. So I will continue making decisions that will illuminate her life to the rest of the world, that will fight for people whose lives were like hers.
1: I'm your host, Jody Ann. Our guest on today's episode is Franz Berthaud, who found his professional life as an administrative director at the Dana Farber Cancer Institute and his personal life collide. This episode is titled The Malignancy of Both because Franz and I discussed the malignancy of racism and what our world could look like if we attacked it with the level of rigor we do cancer. We also talk about his journey with his sister's triple negative breast cancer, its malignancy, and the tools she sent for him to change the course of cancer for other women of color like her, like me. Just like the other episodes this season, we've recorded this interview during the COVID-19 pandemic this becomes our entry point into talking about racism in the workplace and in our healthcare system. Here's my conversation with France.
0: You look professional. Because I got glasses?
1: You like wearing things that have buttons, and then you have a layer.
0: Oh, but I got, like, basketball shorts on. Well, no, I put the layer on because I was cold. Oh,
1: okay, okay. Yeah, this
0: is... Function, not fashion. Okay. Yeah.
1: Is that the expectation for your job? Like you can't just show up in your pajama tops.
0: How you know this is this is a very interesting thing, right? Because like you really come to understand how fake, <laughs> like, how fake work life is in the sense of like you're gonna do the same work if you showed up in sweatpants than you did in in a suit, and you know that. That's jarring for me because I, prior to to being at home in terms of, you know, like COVID, I was in a suit every day. And, you know, I had this in my mind as a little kid, like, I want to be in an important job where I'm wearing a suit and not going to court.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, I had that too. And then, then I was a personal trainer for two years and I'm like, oh, spandex is cool.
0: Yeah, you know, like, and now athleisure, you know
1: what I mean? <laughs> You know, there are a lot of companies that are going full-time remote because right. their workforce is so productive. They're not seeing a disruption. And it could be, you know, now they're at home or it could be that they're all wearing pajama pants.
0: <laughs> it is the, a lot of people calling it like the, the Zoom mullet where on top, you know, like you look like me. You got a little button now, you got a Sherpa on, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm cute. <laughs> and then, you know below sea level we out here got nike basketball shorts and you know like you'd be lucky if i put lotion on my leg i put lotion on my legs i know
1: but you can't do do that for the culture
0: (laughs) i like how i'll just say i do things for the culture and people like you can't just the things that you're supposed to do do it for the culture but um it kind of shakes it up for me because i'm what happens when we go back? Like, am I going to feel some type of way when I put on a suit? Like, also, is it going to fit after the quarantine 15? Hello. So, I don't know.
1: I will say this. If I had a job to go back to... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know if we're oh. laughing or crying.
1: No, I'm good. I was dying to leave my job. But I was thinking if I had to go back, like how challenging that would be for me physically, because because of my spinal cord injury, I have a bunch of neurological symptoms all over my body. And to be like shoulders bare, back bare, not having things touch me feels so good. <laughs> like wearing clothes ever since my surgery was always uncomfortable because any little thing was just, it was so bad. I think I've had to give away, you know, a lot of t-shirts and stuff now because if the fabric isn't right, it just doesn't touch my body well. And all I can think about is how much pain I'm in. And so I think about being home and how that could be a benefit for folks who have, you know, a myriad of disabilities and how it's just like freed them mentally. Like I actually can focus more on my work because I don't have to be in this thing that's so uncomfortable or try to Perform ableness, you know, in a lot of different ways that just takes up so much mental space.
0: <laughs> and that's the thing. It's like less about why home is so comfortable and more why is being at work so uncomfortable. You know, right now, diverse inclusion equity people are like, yeah, we want you to show up to work as you are. We want you to show up to work as your full self. I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. But this is the thing is, we're not actually allowed to fully show up as ourselves because human beings, we are flawed. And they don't want that part. So it's like, I want you to show up, wear this suit, wear this, this is the uniform, whether it is explicitly stated or not, you look across, you know, what everyone else is wearing. You're like, okay, if this is how I'm supposed to dress, this is how I'm supposed to show up. This is the verbal cues that all like, you know, and, and to your point that, that is exhausting because yeah. you are not being yourself. We're talking, you know, people are at work maybe 40 hours a week. I think a lot of people are working more than they have prior to but trying to delineate between your work day and your, rest of your day is is super hard and so even like you're home and then you're feeling like you gotta show up (laughs) go ask somebody else and I'm like yo I'm home yep again I'm wearing basketball shorts I am home
1: it's an interesting concept too because when you think about showing up as your full self which spoiler alert this is literally what my TED talk is about I'm doing TEDx Seattle and this is my follow. Okay, so shut up. This is is literally the topic of my talk where I'm just like, you say this, but you don't actually want this. So yeah, I'm not doing that until you get your shit together is essentially what 15 minutes of my talk (laughs) is saying. But when we think about these standards and this normativity of professionalism, your normative professionalism is actually whiteness. And so how does that work for folks of color who, more so than white people, get this message of we want you to be yourself. But you definitely don't want that for me, and particularly as a person of color. And so it's, it's just super challenging to figure out then, how do you comport yourself, right? And I was chatting with my friend who talked about, what does it feel like when white supremacy enters your house? Mm through these Zoom things, because, and I felt that when I was doing my application process for TED, there's this section where you have to pitch like a whole, the whole TED team. And suddenly for the first time ever (laughs) on my screen, it's like 20 white people.
0: And you're like, wait a like I didn't choose y'all to be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and then as you're saying, like you are emotionally, your chemical state is changing in a space of rest, in the space where you're supposed to be yourself. That you are putting on this costume, this armor, this performance, what have you, to, in order to show up in these Zoom calls. And so, after I get off some of these calls, my space feels different. Right. <laughs> so my friend's like, I need to burn sage and <laughs> <Yeah,
0: right.
1: laughs> just clear I'm, the I energy. Just,
0: I just move. I'm out every every hour after every meeting. I just move to a different house. Like it's
1: yeah. Just I gotta go. Just.
0: man you you know you really touched on like it's real the the fact that man it's the and I ask this question a lot about everything we do at Dana-Farber and and really in many aspects of my life where someone's saying like well this is you know this is how we do whatever whatever and then I, I always ask them like what is its orientation like what do you mean I'm like what is the starting point what is it based off of? Because if you say we're doing X, Y, Z, I'm like, yo, what is X? Because if X is white, I don't want to do Y and Z. I want to talk about how we went from A to X, and X is where we're starting from. And that is has always been what I try to get people to kind of apply and in just conversations we have. I'm like, just think about like what we're starting from, and you know, we talk about ableism. Or like, someone's like, this is, this is the front door of how you enter the building. I'm like, where's the ram? Oh, it's on the back of the building? I'm like, how are we oriented to the, to the live space, the living world around us, the people, the language, how we show up to work? It's like, what is it all based from? Because if it is based in whiteness, which more like, I don't know, I'm gonna throw out a stat that's probably accurate, 99.9% sure that if it's a, it's based in whiteness, there's like a, it's a faulty existence. It's not real, it's, it's very real and it's a very perhaps accurate for a small subset of people. And everyone else has to bend and break to fit into that mold so you could uh, comport yourself in the way in which we've decided is is how we should operate from here on out.
1: This relates exactly to a conversation I was just having this morning with my trainer around cancer screenings and data for when people should be screened. Mm-hmm. If how you determine when you get screened for colon cancer, when you get screened for breast cancer, et cetera, if all of that starts in whiteness, right, because people of color are not part of the data set that led you to develop the protocols and the norms of what age you should be when you start getting screened for this, then you're missing huge chunks of people, right? Facts.
0: There is this story, and and I might not be getting accurate. So Gleevec, Gleevec is, is, it's used in multiple myeloma, which is a a blood cancer. It's been one of the biggest successes in all of like cancer treatment. People like, yo, Gleevec, Gleevec it's hot, like Gleevec mixtapes, like, Gleevec like, it's like,
1: uh, like k 2
0: you know, right, Gleevec <laughs> is the one, and so, but when they were de- developing the drug, and all of the trials, and, like, the data that they got, like, yo, it's so successful, and then, they tried it on i think i i and it's uh it might have been in japan i know it was were considering like well how does it show up in the asian population and then it's like well it doesn't work and it's like well because all of your data the re- it's so successful it's incredible but all of the data was based in whiteness and it's like what are we talking about now when we're saying something is successful when we say a person is successful. When we say a drug is successful, when we say a company is successful, I'm like, yo, what is that measurement? What's the metric for success? Who said this was what it was? And like, and what did that person look like? Like, please tell me. And, and again, 99.9% of the time, it's gonna be this white guy. Yeah, like, this is the definition of success. This is the rate in which, you know, if this drug works, In a population, this is what we're going to say is successful. And it brings us to this point of not being represented in so many aspects of life. And when it comes to cancer, I'm like, I can't mince words and say, like, everybody has to be part of the conversation. Because cancer most certainly doesn't care what you look like. It don't care what your mama's name is. They don't care who your ancestors are. It's just a sheer fact. And people will talk about cancer disparities and they'll base it in race. And, you know, uh, I push the conversation that like, we're not talking about race. We're talking about racism because your race does not determine if you have cancer or not. Or like, But racism will determine if you die from it faster than someone else that doesn't look like you.
1: I was chatting with a friend the other day, and I love her, and she's, like, into this work, woman of color, check, check, check. <laughs> but we were <laughs> chatting. Your yeah, I was like, check, 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 check. So if you say something a little off the cuff, You're right. <laughs> you know, I'm not mad at her because she checked, you know? <laughs> we were talking about Trump and COVID and Herman Cain. And she said, Well, you know, Herman King, he had a pre existing condition. And in my mind, I know what, where she's going, but I'm, I was already irritated. So I wasn't tolerating it. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm like, I know this girl does not have access to his medical history. So what's his pre existing condition? And she's like, He's black. And I'm like, being, and I was getting upset, but my checklist was tempering me.
0: <laughs> but was
1: like, Being black is not a pre existing condition racism is the pre-existing condition and a lot of times even when we're being flippant about things we always miss the system yes we always miss the structure that creates this and that only perpetuates you know the problem um and our inability to solve it or resistance to solve it structurally
0: right this, it, it, this is great because it reminds me of like, in the last chapters, if, if people have read, and I'm sure you've read Ibram X. Kendi's uh, How to Be Antiracist, like the, within the last like few paragraphs, like he is talking about his cancer diagnosis, right? And I'm like, if someone wasn't keen enough to figure out when is he talking about cancer and when is he talking about racism? Because the, the malignancy of both is so apparent it's the same way when you're talking about screening who gets to determine when something is racist or not. Right. And it's how people feel right? oftentimes racism is like this, the capital R word right now where you call somebody racist and they're like, I can't believe it's like you <laughs> shot that mama. It's like, I can't believe. <laughs> right? I was like, are, are you sure we're talking about the same thing? It's like, no, this is, it is it is here and like cancer, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, and the symptoms are there of cancer or the symptoms are there of racism and all the signs are like, it's pointing to it, yet we don't want to take the, the proper assessment or, and whatever that, that may look like, if it's an organization or, or it's a person like that helps you to diagnose, you know, that there is in fact the disease there. You, and you probably already have a feeling, you know what's been in your family. You're like, oh my God, am I racist? Um, my granddaddy was racist. <laughs> is that, I'm like, yeah, hey, you know, you might be racist. It's, it's, it's in your cells, but yet we don't take those proper precautions to think about and do the work of like, all right, I need to find out for sure. You know, let, let me do my history we talk about it from a healthcare standpoint we you, we literally call it a history we don't say like tell me about your family it's like no your history i don't know about yours i want to know about your families if people could apply that same thinking so because they i think people more or less understand cancer and they are willing to use language like battle. We wanna fight cancer. We wanna do whatever we gotta do to conquer cancer. And I'm like, the the enemy might look very different, but the same type of language and that zeal and that fervor, whether it's at my own organization or really any organization or just across society, we're very comfortable with our hatred for cancer you know, but we're very comfortable with not talking about racism or our hatred for racism. And I, I think like no one ever blames a person who's, who's dealt with cancer for their cancer, you know, to be like, yeah, this is your fault. And so I think about racism and the, the way in which it's embedded in society and within people's families, the historical context, it's like there's therapy for this there's systemic therapy there's a surgical resection you know like the analogies like there are ways to figure out how to rid your life of it but it's going to be this ongoing battle it's not just a one-off and you never think about it you never deal with it again and that that is you know the the cancer of our society is like we we gotta we need the chemo for it. We need the immunotherapy for it. And we need to constantly, at every turn, think about how do we find a cure for it and not just, well, let me do this one thing that's gonna look at this one particular part without me diagnosing or even scanning to figure out like, is it anywhere else in my body, you know? And I don't know. I. People got ribbons and they'll, they'll do walks and marches like when it comes to cancer. And I'm like, yes, people, you know, it's, it's touched my life significantly as well. But imagine the intersectionality of you are black and you've battled cancer. I'm like, look, we, it's going to be Black Lives Matter and we're going to have some pink ribbons. You know, like we, we have to, there has to be space to figure out both I I think that's something that I kind of struggle with is that, that fork in the road of how do we fight what might feel like two big monsters? Do you have energy to fight both?
1: I mean, you have to, right? Because the way our society treats cancer is, it's the thing that everyone's always trying to avoid. I don't wanna live here because environmentally it's polluted, it'll you know give me cancer. If I drink this water, it's gonna give me cancer. If I drink too much coffee, it's gonna give me cancer. If I stand in front of the microwave, it gives me cancer. All these small little decisions, every little part of your day, there's some study, some video, some something out there, pop science or real science around you know, this will help you reduce your cancer risk in a lot of silly ways, but in some real ways too. And so I wonder what our society would look like if we treated racism the same way. Okay, I can't do this, I'm gonna be racist, I can't do this, and every, every little thing of like, you know, what our own behaviors are, but also our influence on systems. If we try to think of all these micro moments in our lives of ways that we can always be striving towards racial equity in the same way that we're always striving for a life free of cancer. And the part that trips me up too about Ibram X. Kendi's book is he wrote that book because he thought he was dying. And I wonder why Black people have to die or be afraid of dying or facing death for people to know the truth.
0: Let me sit with that real quick. What? That's big because a lot of people over generations have died, whether we're talking racism, whether we're talking cancer, they don't believe us. They don't believe us. You have this generational trauma, this, this, you know, one of the the family heirloom we pass is oppression and exhaustion. It's like, you're going to get both because This is what I went through, and I got to prepare you to go through it as well. You know, you've got, you know, cameras on cell phones that's capturing things, and they still don't believe us when we show them. They're like, is that Photoshop? I'm like, yo, you really just saw, like, this this person get murdered. And even in showing them and constantly showing them, and, and then they become desensitized. You know, there is this, like, there's a balance almost, and it's delicate where we have the attention of society. we like, yo, we gotta show you this. It may be painful, but we need, need to show you this. And they're like, wow, this is terrible. You're seeing it cyclically over and over and over again. And they're like, wow, it's so bad. I don't wanna look at it anymore. And then it's like, I just don't wanna look at it anymore. And then they forget it exists. And I, I'm not sure, I'm honestly not sure what it will take to be believed to be believed whether it's, we're screaming at the top of our lungs that Black Lives Matter, where you have Black women in hospitals receiving less pain medication because they don't believe, or they believe that Black people have a higher threshold to pain. And it's like, what is all of this based in? The, the historical context of what is being passed down from generation to generation in medical school teachings, and that like people like, oh, this is what I, yeah, this makes sense, you know. It's like, yeah, we, you know, and um. For uh, kidney function tests, we always uh, factor in for the. Oh, is the patient black? Okay, you're going to need to multiply by blah blah. I'm like, what? I wish I got different kidney? Oh,
1: I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, the thing is, like, it's so wild that there are so many um, things that we do in medicine that's based in, like, faulty medicine that was done during the enslavement of Africans or and, and that we've just carried on. Like, it for me, I think th- those particular things, it's like no one ever goes back to, like, double check you know they know i'm like yo, hey, ain't nobody doing a word check on this you know i think it, it it's i feel like we, we we're talking in circles whether we're talking like what what are the beginning points of everything medical education any tests that are being done what is it oriented in and if it's based on lies like you better believe that everything from that point on was inaccurate was inaccurate and that's wild to say. Wild.
1: And that's exactly what you're talking about. Like if we're doing XYZ, what is your X? And then also what happened at A because we're carrying those <laughs> we're carrying those things through. Double check your work, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is just so wild because I think that like for all intents and purposes, we internalize some of this stuff too, you know, like Yes, I think all Black women are strong. Do I think they have some superhuman strength that means they shouldn't get pain medication as, you know, their white counterpart? No. This is what we're talking about. People do this, you know? You have Black women dying at alarming rates from, like, childbirth. What are we talking about here, people? I think there's, like, this all of these like moments and you, I think you call them micro moments, right? All of these things are happening. And it's like, if you step back and took that 30,000 foot view and said like, yo, what are we actually talking about here? There's a lot of murmuring and we need to have and understand what the resounding conversation is so that we can shift it. Because if we're not making the appropriate changes in these pockets, whether it's cancer care uh, disparities or, You know, you you were touching on environmental racism, like you live space where you live. If we're not talking about all of these things and how they're all aligned, and then figuring out what are we going to do about it, then what are we actually talking about?
1: Yeah, what, what are we actually talking about? Because even when I think about, you know, the strong Black woman thing, and that's something I struggle with, and I do a lot of thinking and writing about, is it's just... An excuse. It's just the avenue to not give us something because you could use these stereotypes actually to help us. If you say, hey, Black women experience less pain, that could be turned in if your Black female patient is coming into your office and you ask her on a scale of one to 10, how much does this hurt? And she tells you a three, it's probably a seven. And so maybe you need to rethink your approach because her self-reporting of her pain level might be different than someone who doesn't have not only lived experiences, but a historical and ancestral trauma of having to overcome pain.
0: And like you, people will <laughs> ask like, well, how do we, Jodian, how do we combat that? Like, what? And I'm like, yo, imagine if that black woman comes into her appointment and it is another Black woman sitting across from her. And like we talk about this in calling a cultural concordance, right, between the patient and the caregiver or the clinician. and They could look like you. They could speak the same language. like There is this shared understanding. And there is this opening up between the patient and the provider. In a way that I think what white privilege does is if predominant number of the clinicians are white, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to think about it. You walk in, you're like, oh, hey, boom, boom, here we go. But when you're a person of color, if you speak Spanish as your primary language, and you're like, how am I going to communicate with this person so that they understand? Because not just like, oh, do you hear me? Are you listening? Do you understand? Do you comprehend? Even reading between the lines and understanding how we care across different cultures, you know. What I'm saying and how the information might be conveyed to you and why I have my granddaughter in the room with me and, or why I have this particular person. Like, Why did I bring 14 people with me for this appointment? I'm like, we are oriented in different ways by the varying cultures that we have. And so we can't expect our patients to do this, right? Kind of comport to like, well, I... I want you to show up. Only one person can show up with you. I'm like, I'm sorry, I run with a whole crew of family, and that's how we're we're doing it. And you know, I've, I've spoken to you in the past about my sister, and as my sister was going through her her cancer treatment, like I was at every appointment. My brother in law's at other appointment. If my other sister was was able to come, like, but this is what we do. It is this the 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 pain. The successes, everything is communal. We share it all so that when something really good happens for you, it happens for all of us. When something really bad happens to you, we share in that burden and we, we shoulder that pain so you don't have to do it by yourself. And I think like, we have to like, switch our approach and how we care for our, our patients and think like that. Yo, that's equity. People will talk about like, we gotta treat everyone the same. I'm like, you absolutely do not. You do not treat everybody the same because that's not fair. Yep. It's not equity. Well perhaps perhaps it is actually fair, right? Everybody gets a dollar. You know, I'm like, great. If I'm at negative zero and someone is at a thousand, negative zero is not even a real number. I promise I went to college. Like you know, you know I was there.
1: I know, I know you was there.
0: <laughs> it but if and and someone is starting with a thousand dollars in their pocket, you give them a dollar, it's nothing. You give me a dollar, it's really nothing because I'm not like I need a lot more to you know to to help me. And I think that whether it's socioeconomic status and the needs of our patients, it's the cultural needs, like what do they actually what do they actually need? And the only way to get there is to understand. What they need from them, your own internal knowledge. Like, we need people that look like them, that speak their languages, like all of these things. And I don't know, I, I might be getting a little impassioned because <laughs> I struggle with sometimes organizational approaches for culturally competent care or, you know, or, or what a lot of literature is saying now is like cultural humility. It's like, do I want you to know my culture? Like, Yeah, I think that could, be, that could be valuable. Do I want you to be humble enough to know what you don't know? Let me lead conversations. Let me help you in understanding how to care for me. I'm like, that's real. If we sh- showed up with that humility and, and most of our patient and honestly, human interactions, like, yeah, the world might be a little bit better.
1: Yeah, I hear that. Even structurally, how we we set up our our medical spaces in whiteness. I also roll deep. I roll deep to every appointment. I went to an MRI, which is a very uh, singular experience.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You tried to bring someone into the machine. No,
1: actually, actually, I did have someone in the machine room with me. She also had to get wanded and get in scrubs and she sat there reading a book and kind of stroking my foot the whole time because I, I had a really bad MRI, MRI experience prior to that. But I would roll deep easily with five people in the waiting room for me to just go do an MRI. But I was thinking more when I went to do all my surgery consultations, when you're in those rooms, it's just set up as a you're in an exam room. And so when you have seven people trying to roll up in a room that's only set up for the doctor and the patient it becomes an extravaganza of nurses and stuff trying to trying to find chairs like just imagine if you had a room where you knew you were going to have these conversations with patients and there was a bench you know <laughs> like, <laughs> like oh you see me like you were <laughs> you understand that people Lord,
0: yeah
1: people roll deep but Anyway, I was super excited to have this conversation with you because the nuances and the complexities and the orientations to cancer are just so vast. And I think, you know, having a personal experience and also coming from the public health space is something that we both share. You're deep in the cancer stuff way more than I am. And I did not get this when we were both at Boston College and I didn't get it until very recently that your whole career has been in public health and specifically in cancer, right? Right. How did that happen?
0: Going from, from college and having done tons of classes and you know like pre-med route and thinking, gonna be a doctor, you know, I'm a Haitian mother, like you're gonna be a doctor, lawyer, or, or I'm going to live with you for the rest of your life. I'm like, ooh, can't can't have the third option. So let's figure out the first two. <laughs> um, and so definitely, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a doctor, go down that route. And upon graduating, it, doing clinical uh, research at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and bone marrow transplant, and thinking that this is going to help me have this robust application, like this is going to be incredible. And I... I knew I loved healthcare and I knew it'd be even meaningful of being a, a black m- man in the healthcare space. And, and my thought was, I'm gonna do that as, as a doctor, as a, as a clinician. Um, and I really started to gain more of an affinity of well, how do we transform the systems? And it was more about efficiency and how we did things in the hospital space and I loved it. I'm like, okay, what if we did this? What are the downstream effects? What if we change this? Okay, like now we're cooking, let's do this, you know, and, and galvanizing people to make these these changes and transformations. And I loved that piece. And so I, I started to think about, all right, so if what I loved about healthcare and, and my thought process and this vision of being a doctor was I could impact and affect so many lives, you know, maybe in the span of a year I might be impacting, you know, a few hundred lives. That's, that's amazing. And then I was like, well, if I was running the hospital, not only am I creating the environment for those doctors, nurses, NPs, PAs, kind of all the clinicians to do that miracle work and care for those, each of them hundreds of patients, but anyone who walks into this building, any patient that walks within this space, like, I can transform their lives in a way that I think would be so impactful. And so just from a numbers perspective, I was like, I'll take the thousands over the few hundreds. And so I really started going down that road to becoming a, a healthcare administrator, and specifically going into public health, because people say, well, you could have got your MBA in healthcare. Like you could have got your MHA in healthcare. I was like, ah, but public health is how I am oriented to the world. Right. Again, we're talking like communal. So I'm like, how can we have the greatest good for the greatest amount of people? This is the, this is back in you know, um, BC. I, I was a double major in philosophy. Biology was one major philosophy was the other. We talk about utilitarianism, and it's this idea of the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. And I'm like, that's what public health is honestly all about because you're making these systemic changes like these big things, because you're thinking about changing the health of populations, the health of the public. Um, And that's not just instantaneous. We're talking, we we have the potential to change generational health. And the more and more I thought about that, and as my career has gone on, thinking about my Blackness in healthcare, and I've stayed in the cancer space because of, of you know, personal experiences. One of my best friends battled cancer and, and unfortunately uh, succumbed to, to cancer. And Darlene was, am I forgetting, maybe 23, um, died of osteosarcoma. And so at a very young age, even in my, my career, as it was progressing, I'm like, okay, I see the impact that this particular disease has on people. Like, you know, she's a young you know, Dominican woman. I'm like, okay, what does her community, how do they approach her cancer diagnosis and how she received care? How did she think about herself? How did she bring herself to her appointments and how she battled it? And so I kind of stayed with it because I saw the the need for someone like myself to be part of it. Like, okay, I figured out what weapon I'm really good at wielding. And now I found the, the fight that I think I can have an impact in. I can contribute in. I'm like, all right, so let's go. So over the years, I've just been sharpening my sword, you know, like how do I impact cancer at at an organizational level, we can we can go nationally, we can talk about health policy. Like I, I don't think there's a ceiling to how we can truly impact cancer. And for me specifically of people of color who are battling cancer. I, I will not, like that is what I'm focused on. That's what I'm, I'm passionate about. And the way equity works it's tide rising, no matter what we do for people of color in their cancer battles, it will benefit everyone in their cancer battles.
1: It's a sense of like, the ceiling is stunted if you do not center the stories and experiences and the needs of people of color in your community. It's not gonna happen. In a separate space, when I talk about the racial gender pay gap, it's like, how can all women get equal pay if we don't think about Latinx women making 53 cents on the dollar for a white dude. Mathematically, it's impossible, right? right. <laughs> you cannot get to gender pay equity if you do not specifically address the gender pay gap for Latinx women, period. And so it's like, how can we get to cancer innovations? How can we think about cancer as a community experience or you know, how to adjust that if we do not censor the people who are disproportionately impacted by it, dying from it, getting caught later from it, et cetera?
0: It's like if people understood, because they, they apply the same principle to many aspects of, of their life where they call it the weakest link, right? In the sense that you're only as strong as your weakest link. So we're only as equitable as our most inequitable aspect of whatever it is, whether it's gender pay equity, cancer care equity, or, or disparities, like go all the way to the bottom and say like, okay, you know, who is here? Who is in the bottom of the cast? Now, how do we raise it for them so they can get somewhere near the top? Because anyone who's in the middle is going to benefit And if people only saw it like that, instead of saying, we have this finite pie, and if we slice it this way for you, that's less for everyone else. I'm like, no, there is enough for everyone. We can feed everybody. You just got to think about the pie in a different way.
1: Yeah, I think thinking about the pie in a different way and also having a people forward approach, like who are these people who are impacted and what does that look like? And so I think connected to having a people-forward approach is thinking about language and how we talk about cancer patients and the labels and and all of that. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on, you know, calling someone a cancer patient versus what I've heard, a patient with cancer.
0: Uh, it's This is big for me. I think language is one of our most powerful, you know, it could, it could build, it could destroy. Like, the language is huge. And... I often look at it in almost considering how do people call themselves like how do they, how are they oriented to their condition because cancer is something that they are going through right and you know we we people talk about it's not a homeless person it's someone who's experiencing homelessness right the hope in when we're talking about cancer is there might be a point and they are without cancer. So if we are using this verbiage of like, uh, this is a cancer patient, like, uh, the hope is that's not the case. They are a patient with cancer, because also they could have a slew of other things. And I think it doesn't do enough of pulling in the kind of varying aspects of people's humanity. I don't want to relegate them to this condition is who they are versus who they are and they also happen to have this condition hopefully at the moment yeah so i think it's it's big it it might seem like this finite point because you're looking at a sentence and it's just moving a few words but i think it speaks volumes when we're talking about actual people here
1: yeah i remember when i was struggling I would just say, I'm disabled, I'm disabled. And I just like, in a very negative sense with this internalized ableism, you know, my family and friends were like, no, you just can't do this right now. Or you have a disability and not needing to, I don't wanna say tie it to my identity because it is a part of my identity, but I was using it to put myself down that language shift of, oh, I just can't do this right now, or thinking about my body and with more compassion, and not with labels that, you know, have been used to disenfranchise people and um, marginalize people, I think is, is super important. Another label I've struggled with is calling myself a survivor. I think because of my particular experience, I don't think that I've survived cancer uh, itself but I'm surviving this ongoing recovery of my spinal cord injury which is the result of the surgery which took out the tumor in my spinal cord right and so if we're talking about surviving I feel like we're talking about a battle <laughs> and the battle for me as somebody who had surgery and not chemotherapy was with the recovery process. I mean, I didn't have any role in the surgery. I was asleep. (laughs) I didn't do anything. (laughs) It was everything after. And so, you know, I find people who project labels onto me like, oh, you're a cancer survivor. And I feel like a fraud in that a little bit because, you know, as you're talking about how people describe themselves and how important that, you know, self-identification is, I don't feel that but as I'm like entering into this cancer space and you're in this cancer space a lot, I'm curious, you know, what you think about that. And, you know, particularly as you think about the cancer survivor versus cancer thriver distinction, like there are a lot of different labels for folks who had cancer and no longer have it anymore.
0: Uh, and I, I think about this one uh, a lot, you know, because I've I, I shared with you, my sister after her, you know, 13th month battle with triple negative breast cancer, you know, and I say succumbed, you know, to, to the disease. And, you know, when, when you read obituaries, they'll always say, well, more of a hilarious was survived by, and they'll say like enlist all of these family members. It almost innately creates this survivor's guilt because someone has told you, someone in written form, and this is the format basically for every obituary. I'm like, who wrote this? Where, what's the X here? Yeah, Yeah, what's What's the the X? (laughs) Who wrote this? Um, But to say like, are survived by this. And I'm like, oh my goodness, because you're telling me this is what, this is what survival feels like for me. And I'm, I'm in pain on a, on a daily basis, right? Uh, Emotionally of, of missing this, this person that was, that was such, you know, beyond this, this important figure in my life. And so when people might describe themselves as survivors, and again, self-identification, I'll never tell anyone who they could or could not be or how they see themselves, because I think that's one of the most beautiful things about humanity. But I think there's this element of, so what do you call people? who did not quote unquote survive or win their battle we don't have those words and that's the thing is when you think about the the spectrum of life when you we do such a bad job of talking about death and it's something that I've tried'm I'm actively trying to be better about and and my sister passed away three years ago and I can't hear certain songs without crying right and like this is and this is, this is my survival, right? No, I'm like, I almost feel like this, you know, more of a hilarious is existed by, and like, because we're, we're existing now. I don't feel like I've, I've survived. I feel like a piece of me has died. And so what do we call the person who did not make it to the other side of, of their cancer diagnosis? And we don't have that, that language. And so I think about that that power of language of we, we name things a certain way and we don't think about the other people that are not part of the narrative because they can't speak for themselves. Yeah. They can't self-identify.
1: I'm really struggling with that now as you're saying it because we have this fighter language around cancer, this battle fighting cancer warrior, et cetera, and so if you succumb to it, as you say, does that mean you lost?
0: <laughs> then are mm-hmm. you a loser?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And no, no. And so why don't we have a robustness of language for, for folks who, you know, in your words, succumb to cancer? Why not? um and that's why i think it 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 can make it hard to talk about them because it's so hard to even say you know that someone died
0: right 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 it is it's very hard to 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 say those those words and and yeah and there's no language for for us the the folks who are left to collect the pieces of our hearts and make something of the rest of our lives, right? And my, my sister was the best thing this world would have ever experienced. You know, yeah. my daughter's three years old and their they're crossroads of, of life, the beginning of life and the, the end of another was a mere few months, you know. My sister passed away in July, and, and my daughter was born um, that September. I think what brings me a sense of, of of comfort in being the survived, if you will, or the existed, or, or, um, you know, being the ones that are that are here is this feeling as if there was some sort of like they dapped each other up. The and the, you know, the, the two celestial escalators and they're like, oh, are you going to where I think you're going? Oh, will you bring back this message for me? You yeah. know, if you, if you ever have uh, family members that find out you're going back to like, you know, this is a very immigrant culture, back to your home country. Okay, take this back, take this back. I'm like, these are 17 suitcases. I'm like, they're not going to let me on the plane with all this. And so I, I kind of, I think about it in the same way that, you know, my sister spoke to Amaya and was like, I'm gonna need you to take these things back because I think people are looking for them and they'll, they'll need this and equipped her with a little bit of that magic that helps, it selfishly helps me make it through every day. And I honestly, I have to believe Yeah, that's, that's the case. And I'm someone who operates on hope. And that's, that, that's what we operate on as an organization at at the Dana-Farber. Because if you don't have that, past that, I'm not sure, like, what else is the motivation? What else can you do?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I'm Jamaican. And I remember growing up, anytime we would go to Jamaica, my mom, there would be like a whole three week extravaganza of packing a barrel.
0: I don't. And <laughs> yes, I know them. exactly.
1: Okay, yeah. so you know.
0: Haitian culture, we call it a, a doom.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved packing the barrel. I literally saw them put a kitchen sink in the barrel. Like, literally, there was a kitchen sink in the barrel. And Sorry. so I swear to God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that saying, they say like everything but the kitchen sink. They're like, no, actually, that, yeah. that can fit in there too.
1: oh my gosh it's so funny that anytime my auntie lorna was in new york they're like yo we gotta send the barrel because auntie lorna could pack the barrel like when that kitchen sink was in the barrel auntie lorna packed that barrel and my job was always to sit on it so she could close it because of course you know you gotta overstuff it right 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 (laughs) (laughs) i remember asking my mom why do we have to do this i didn't understand because when i go to jamaica their houses are bigger than ours. I don't understand why they have to send so much stuff. And then really having that conversation of our family is across many, many different countries, and we all have a responsibility to each other to to share information, to share things, to share our resources. Um, And so I I just think about your sister when your daughter was coming down, like, yo, I'm about to send a barrel.
0: it's real like i and it I, that's amazing i love that i love that that's so comforting you know. It, and it's i i i genuinely i feel that
1: yeah like
0: she she gave her elements and pieces of her and said like carry this because there are people that are missing this piece and they and they need this
1: so what what would you tell your daughter about your sister
0: so I I thought about I've been thinking about this a lot I think about it every day to the point that in what used to be the office and now is the toy room because that's what happens when you have a kid they're like yeah I'm gonna need this room um, I have this large painting of my sister it, it was a gift from from my wife Nora and and my sister in law because it's something that I knew I I wanted I was like I I need a visual cue. And the likeness, right, the, the the painting, it's beautiful. And it's my sister smiling. And it's from this photograph of we were in the cafeteria at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In between, like, she had an exam appointment and was waiting to go to her chemo appointment. And we didn't want to wait in the waiting room. I was like, let's go have lunch. So we sat and the, the sun rays were coming in. She had her head wrap. I was like, oh, let me get this photo of you real quick. <laughs> The way you look like me along, like, you know, so I took this photo of her and it's, it's just, it's beautiful. And for me, that's one of these, the last memories of seeing her smiling um, and feeling like she was in control of her body. Cause I think that's one thing about cancer is you feel like you're losing control of your own body. Um, And so I I took this photo. She loved it. I loved it. And this um, really dope artist, um, Art Mondo, uh, out in Colorado, painted it. And so it's it's large. And Amaya interacts with the painting, will say hi to it sometimes, talks to it. And I'm like, for me, I'm like, that's so beautiful because yeah, I can show you a bunch of cell phone videos. I can show you these photos. I was like, but she gets the opportunity to see my sister in the way that she looked to me, radiant, full of color, smiling and just being able to do that on, on a consistent basis. So I can say, Oh, it's a visual cue for me. Let me tell you this story about this one time, you know, let me tell you this, let me tell you this. And, you know, recently not too far from the painting, we have the broom that um, Nora and I we we jumped over at, at our wedding, and you know now that she's getting, getting a bit more sense of the world, she's like, why is there a broom up there? That makes no sense. You tell me it has to go in the closet. This is a, a, a you know a place for everything. And then I got to.
1: Explain, it's for the culture. It's for the culture. Oh, it's
0: <laughs> That the is culture. absolutely for the culture. Of mine. but I got to explain the significance of the broom itself, and to say like, you know who made this for us. And then boom it's another story about my sister and so for her she's starting to see these alignments of my life and these milestones in my life and how integral my sister's presence was and all of those and for her i think it makes it that more significant of who my sister was not only to me but to every aspect of who i am today and like that's the most important thing I can do is, you know, we we talk about ancestral lineage and it's like, you know, griots of passing stories down when we don't have them written down, when we don't have that person here, we get to pass those on to our loved ones. and, And that's what, that's what I get to do.
1: Yeah. You know, I want to chat more about your sister. She's such a big part of your life. Cancer had been such a big part of your professional life. So, you know, when we're talking about breast cancer, even finding that it's a very personal <laughs> experience. And so when did you become part of her story? How does she tell you? And kind of then what happened knowing that you had all these professional lovers that could potentially help her?
0: I will never forget that day. My sister was a nurse. So she fully understood what it meant in terms of health and, and screenings, like she, she knew. And, you know, and, and she shared with me that she had you know, felt this lump um, and called her PCP. It's like, hey, I feel something. And this is, now we're gonna, all right. So I feel something, talking to her PCP. I feel something right here. My sister is a trained clinician. I feel something. The doctor's like, it's just fat like adipose tissue, whatever, or a lipoma, whatever she said, like, it's just fat. And my sister was like, look, no, I'm going to go and get a screen. My sister was 39 years old. And we're talking about cancer screenings. Who is the X? What is it oriented towards? She was too young for a mammogram, right? So she was like, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to get it. I don't like the feeling of this. She gets the diagnosis that it, it's it's cancer. She calls me and tells me as soon as that happened. I remember being at work and feeling disoriented. Like I was holding the phone in my hand and I could hear her on the other side like, hey, hey. And I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I'm just standing there and I shared like a, a, a cube area with this guy, Chris, and he was like, you all right? And I was like, I, I, I gotta go home. I gotta go home. And I lived like my sister and I, we lived probably about 20, 25 minutes away from each other. And I was like, I, I gotta go. And I just left. I left everything, just took my phone and I, I just booked it. You know, once to see my sister that, that afternoon and, you know, crying, holding each other, laughing a little bit. Cause that's one of the things that we did too, right? Like we even found a little bit of levity. And I was like, how dare that doctor call you fat? You know, like we, we got to, and, and you know, it, which is most certainly one of the things I miss, but we got to, you know, it's like these ingredients. We got to add a little bit of that spice in because we knew that's what was going to help us get through this. And from there, I was like, look, I know the head of, of breast oncology at Dana-Farber. Let me contact him and see what we can do because I, I want to get you the best care possible and selfishly I also knew it meant that I could carve out whatever time I needed in my day to go see her because it's we're talking I get to walk from one building to the next i call him up Dr. Eric Weiner super nice guy and he's like it's like who who here is because the thing at Dana-Farber we do like really subspecialties, so you might have a doctor like they see triple negative breast cancer this person sees inflammatory breast cancer i'm like who sees triple negative breast cancer you know I was like whoever it is like i need to contact them we need i need to talk like let's make this happen he's like don't you worry like i will personally care for your sister and you know that was comforting i'm like all right we're talking you know top person in the world so he's he you know caring for my sister and, and again i got to go to every single appointment you know, um, that I was able to, but virtually all of them, and, and just be there with her, sit in the waiting room with her, um, making sure, and we're talking about the place that I work, but I'm like, making sure she gets the best care possible, that, you know, we're not even waiting too long in the, in the waiting room. I'm like, these are all the things, that, and, and again, that there was a luxury, because I knew how to navigate my own organization. I knew how to navigate the cancer world in that space. And that's not true for everyone, especially not true for every person of color that walks through any organization, um, any cancer center. They might not have someone who's gonna be there to advocate and say, why is this happening? Why are we not doing this? Whatever, whatever the case may be. Some people might be by themselves. I was afforded the ability to be present and and do all that and to be there from beginning to end. but it was hard, it is so hard, because not being able to delineate between everything that I was doing yeah. in my work world, right? I'm sitting there and we're in a meeting, we're trying to make decisions, and I'm thinking, for what? What are we talking about? My sister is dying, and you know, to this day, I find it very difficult if I'm ever in meetings or have to see Dr. Weiner and not because of anything he did or didn't do. you know, I think that he took exceptional care you know of my sister and, and the team. It's just the constant memory of loss of being the survivor, and that the survivor's guilt that occurs with the reminder of seeing his face and thinking we didn't win this battle and that's super hard i walk into the space you know i walk through the doors that uh, she she would have walked through i see some of the people that she would have seen i talk to some people that you know might have known about her case and i think like it's a very, very hard because then I, I can't quite escape that. So whether it, it's the, the pain of it, would I have a different orientation to it all? Perhaps if my sister were still here and she were, you know, to, to your words, either surviving or she's thriving. But since that's not the case, my reality is this and how I, I manage those emotions of walking into the building or, or next to the building that my sister died in. Like, it's not easy. It's not easy. Um, and then I think about how many other families of color, people of color, their caregivers, their loved ones, people that they're survived that feel like this. And I ask myself, what, you know, Franz, what are you gonna do with those emotions? You can't save your sister. Okay. How many other sisters can you save? Can you have some sort of impact in their lives and the lives of their families? And like for me, like that, that's, a, that's an engine. Like that's a, that's a drive because I don't want anyone to feel what, what I wake up with every day. You know. It's it's not easy. And so I want I want people to, to be able to experience their loved ones fully and for the remainder of their lives. Cause there's so much more that we gotta fight for. And so many people that we have to fight for it, that we, we need we need all the soldiers. If we wanna adopt, you know, all that war. <laughs> War and a- aggression language. Right? <laughs> but there, there's so many fights out there. That we need all the people that that we can that we can get. Um, and so I don't I don't take my work in this space lightly, you know, for me, it is life or death. And and that's that's why I, I, I go hard for the culture of, <laughs> um, you know, I was I was my sister's health care proxy. And so you imagine how challenging that could be, you know, I was what, maybe 31 uh, at the time, Um, how challenging that could be to make decisions that feel like truly life or death and, and feeling like you're accountable for that. And with my sister's passing, I've not relinquished my proxy role. My job was to make decisions about her life when she couldn't speak for herself. She cannot speak for herself now because she's no longer here. So I will continue making decisions that will illuminate her life to the rest of the world, that will fight for people whose lives were like hers. So, like that, that role, I, I didn't give, I didn't hand my badge in when 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 she passed. I'm like, okay. Where she's living, her existence is on a different plane than this one. But I gotta keep going.
1: That's why she sent you that barrel, right? She
0: sent me that barrel. (laughs) There was a whole sink in it.
1: Because, with all the tools of her experience, of your your passion for this, as someone who's in this community, right? like a sister, sister, right, France, you know, like as another woman of color, your work is for me, for other people like me to move away from the kind of warrior soldier language. If we think about family and community and care, I feel cared for by you, France, in your work in this space. And I don't, I don't know, if there's language to even express the extent of what that means,
0: I appreciate that. that
1: but the, at the same time, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about you. Like, how have you felt supported? Like, how do you manage that? Not just in the process of your your
0: sister's passing,
1: but every day since.
0: But again, right? We we operate in a communal lens. Um, and with my sister exiting the world, entered, you know, my daughter, Maya. And I'm, I feel very much supported, you know, by, by someone. And I don't ever want to feel like I am giving this emotional burden to a toddler, right, like, who has no idea <laughs> how to, I'm like, I don't know how to make you feel better, dad. Like, that's a lot. But you know, she calls me Dada, like oh, Dada. What do you know? But I think that her existence is so meaningful for me, and obviously my, my wife and and then all the people who knew my sister. I don't just share these memories. It's not as if my sister was only amazing to me. My my niece and my nephew, you know, her survived, um, who were young children. When my sister passed, like we all, we can share in these memories, we can all talk about these beautiful things. And it's it's beautiful. And then we can joke about things that, that you know, that she did, funny things that she said. Because again, while every day, you know, it, it's like being anti-racist, it's this active thing. While every day I get up and I think about her and I use that to, to drive myself forward and, I'm actively approaching this work and I'm like, okay, how do I make an impact? How do I push this forward? But I'm not doing it by myself and I I can't operate in this silo. Um, It it most certainly takes a community. um, And the fight in itself, uh, when we're talking cancer disparities and and equity and and care, um, like I'm not alone in that either. And for me, that's also it's comforting. It's energizing. Um, it's centering. It you know it makes you feel like you're not on the the outskirts of it all, um, and that you are you're right in the thick of it.
1: Yeah. What advice do you have for someone who's lost a sibling?
0: Talk about them. Talk about them. Talk about them. Talk about them, and. Damn, yo, cry, cry about them. I I cry about my sister. I could probably say at least once a week. And I'm okay with that. I there's this element for me of I fear the day that I stop crying over her passing. Because then it means I've forgotten something. I've 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 lost all of the memories. (laughs) <laughs> my my daughter's favorite movie is Coco. And if anyone has ever seen it, it is beautiful. It's beautifully done. And it talks about Dia, Dia de los Muertos, you know, the day of the dead in the Mexican culture. And the final death for anyone who has passed on is when those who are living forget them and they, they disappear. They just turn into dust and disappear. And I'm like, yo, I think about that. Because the, the, the final death for those who have passed and in, in our real lives, right, is, is that point when we've forgotten what they look like. You know, I can't. I have a magnificent and huge painting, you know, in the other room. But these are intentional. So it's be intentional about remembering them. Talk about them. Cry about them. Laugh. Make fun of them. However, you approach and were oriented to your relationship with your sibling carry that forward you know be like yo you would have loved this and like that for me that keeps them alive in your home in your spirit and and all around you and so that while they might be missing physically that that energy is i like that energy is somewhere it can't just disappear, right? Like that energy somewhere. And I'd rather harness it and keep it around me at all times.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's, that's great advice. And something I hold with me for a number of different scenarios, keeping people with you, remembering them, not losing those memories. I don't know if you remember, but a couple years ago, when I got the news that Ron Brace died, I was so torn up this was i mean you see me rolling around bc with ron like this was my i spent so much time with him like my best friend you know the first couple years at bc and i remember when i was in the hospital i don't know i had a lot of dreams about ron and when i was in the hospital um I was just feeling so down and I was just kind of looking out at the clouds and there was this guy in the room with me. And he said, oh, do you see the clouds? Well, it looks like the sun's about to come out. And I said, okay, whatever, bro. I'm sitting here crying, right? I'm not trying to have this conversation with you. (laughs) Then a nurse comes in and she says, Ronnie, are you ready to go? And I nearly fell out. Right. I nearly fell out, and I said, "Okay, I'll look at the, I'll look at the sun coming out now. Okay, I got no, it, okay. Ron. I got it, Ron. You my know, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> um. And I, I, even though he and I had lost touch over the years, I, I do try to be intentional about remembering him and understanding what that relationship meant to me, and I think that that centering around intentions with that remembrance process is, is so important and, and so invaluable. And thank you so much for uplifting that.
0: Sure. Thank you.
1: So as we wind down, speaking of intentions, I always try to create intentional spaces in the interview to uplift other people, other work and things that have been helpful or impactful for people in in any way. And so I wonder if you can share a few recommendations for our listeners. Who is someone that our listeners should know? What should they read? And what should they listen to? Uh,
0: An amazing book that I loved was called When Breath Becomes Air. Um, And the reason why I thought that book was really beautiful was the the perspective of the person who wrote the book Um, was battling uh, cancer. Um, And he was a, I think he was a neurosurgeon, if I'm correct. And I I think about this book specifically because of its intersection of what you think you know and then what happens when you have to experience it. And so even in my cancer journey now, right? It's like, oh, what I think I know about cancer and then what it feels like when it is next door, when cancer is... Is knocking at your bedroom door, like, "Hey, you inside?" Uh, and I think, I think, like, for me, that was that was pivotal in understanding that. Um, because it's a very humbling experience to think you know everything and then have to learn uh, the hard way. Something to listen to, um, other than you know, voice messages, videos of your loved one. If you have them, if you're lucky enough um, to have them, which I have some, my sister would would call me for some reason. She loved calling and singing Lionel Richie. I just call to say I love you, and I'm like, okay, so I have I have those, you know, oh. uh, keeping them in in the cloud so that I don't ever lose them, but something to listen to. Uh, I think um, I listen to a lot of, of songs and music uh, that my sister loved, um, and then and things and songs that remind me of her. There is this beautiful song um, that reminds me very much of her by Michelle Featherstone. Um, it's called "I'm There Too," and if you want, if you read the lyrics, before I'm like, you hey, know what? This is this poetry. Uh, but it, it is just it's the song is beautiful and so i i think about her a lot when i'm you know in my space and i'm listening if i listen to that song um, and then there are some songs that she just loved and i know she loved um one of the things that now i'm, I'm gonna just sit here and wax poetic about my love for my sister but when she started her cancer treatment every month I made her a new mix CD, like her, you know, her mixtape. And I would just put like songs that I think would help either energize her um, or songs that I think I'm like, I want you to sit with this diagnosis. I want you like listen to this songs that would uplift her. Each mixtape had a theme. Like I put a lot of thought and love and attention into it. and because i gave her all of those and i have all of them i created like the the similar like the playlist and like spotify of all the songs that i put on cd for her i feel like we can we're listening to the same songs sometimes and that that's comforting for me so i do listen listen to music michelle featherstone i'm there too um and and listen to your heart give <laughs> me mean, a little bit of advice like Feel all of those emotions. It's so important. Feel them. Let them work through you, you know, like water. Drink it, let it go down. And then when it's time to expel it from your body, you know, do that. Um, but feel them.
1: You have like a little bit more time so I want to ask you a question about that.
0: Of course.
1: Just thinking about being able to be in your feelings and feel those feelings and have these remembrance processes and, and rituals and artifacts, you know, if you will. And doing that as a black dude, right? Like right. what? We don't have a lot of space in our culture. And thus we we internalize not having a lot of space in our culture for black men to be emotional.
0: What do you think about that? I'm no martyr in any way, right? And I'm, I, I, it's not as if I figured out how to deal with my emotions better than any other person, um, but I've normalized and I've made it acceptable for myself to feel because I think about my nephew, right, my, the, the son of my, my sister who passed. And I'm like, you need to know it's okay to be sad, Noah. You're gonna miss her and it's okay to miss her. But I'm like, how can I say it without allowing myself to believe those same words? How can I comfort him if I'm not enabling myself to be comforted? Um, So I think about that as an example, you know, of of doing that for myself and how healing it is for me to be in touch with my emotions and, and what that might mean for any other person so that it gives Yo, we don't even give each other permission to feel and it, it starts with I'm like i'm going to give myself permission so that other people whether they want to give themselves permission from that or if they're they want to approach me and say like can i talk to you about something i've been experiencing or i've been feeling and letting that window be open and just keeping it cracked open for anyone to be able to poke their head through and say, can I just talk to you about something that I've been dealing with because I've been so open and what I've been dealing with. Um, but it, it's not easy. And I, I didn't, you know, this didn't come last night. This this epiphany of my life. Right. <laughs> it, 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 it takes, it takes a lot and it takes a lot of people, you know, in therapy, I ain't even gonna lie to you. Like therapy is huge. You know, people, You go see see your doctor once a year. You go see your dentist once a year to make sure your oral health and your your physical health, everything. Like, oh, you got the physical, you're good to go. But like, we don't even see for our mental health, a professional once a year, just to say like, hey, I think I'm good. You know, let's just take a quick peek at this. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so just normalizing that in language, not like saying these words out loud, therapy, you know, letting people hear it, talking about it and sharing those experiences. I think that when people trust you or they believe you, um, then when you say these things like, hey, yo, therapy works, they might be like, you know what, because you said it, let me just, let me take a look, you know, let me see what this is all about. Um, and giving them that permission to to be curious um, and to be open about it. Yeah,
1: who's someone our our listeners should know?
0: Man, Dr. Bernard Tyson, may he rest in peace, from um, Kaiser Permanente, uh, who passed away recently. When I think about my my career in the intersections of Being and wanting to be a leader in the healthcare space and who he was and what he stood for and getting to the the point and the peak in his career of where he was and still was like, I know I lead this entire thing. I'm gonna let you know how important it is that Black people are at the center. I'm going to talk about all of this. I'm going to bake it into in the entirety of this health system right Kaiser Permanente opened a, a medical school recently and they named it after him and the thought is we're going to teach medical students how to care about the health of the public how to care about how you approach you know caring for people of all differences um, and so his passing I was like damn that was for me I'm like okay I, I have a tough time finding mentors, um, you know, in my field. Uh, and for me, he didn't know it. I never met him before, right? <laughs> but it's the same thing. It's like, you know, I'm rooting for everybody that's Black. And I was like, oh, all right, I'm with you. Um, and so just seeing his career and, and how he went about it um, and, and trying to think about my own, of. Uh, you know your your professional and your personal life and the the intersections of that like how do i make sure that what i care about shows up in how i care for people how i um, conduct myself in my work and what my career span looks like um so yeah dr bernard yeah. tyson
1: I did not know about him, so I definitely have my marching orders to learn about his life and his legacy and the work that he was doing around public health and healthcare. So, Dan, that's a great recommendation. Thank you, and thank you, thank you for doing this, Franz. I really appreciate that you reached out about this project. You know, we haven't spoken in in a number of years uh, since BC, and I think a couple years in New York after seeing you and Nora and your family flourish and grow, you know, I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for you and, and your work and to just be connected to you um, in this new way. It matters, it matters a lot to me.
0: Sure, I, I appreciate you. And, you know, I reached out just to thank you for centering Black Voices because I felt like what, how wonderful it would have been for my sister to. able to engage with something like this right this podcast and hear these stories and and hear herself in it and so again the, the, the proxy in me felt like i had to do what she would have done to say thank you for for having this platform and this opportunity um to to hear us, you know, the, the food for us, by us, mm-hmm. and and so I I appreciate you.
1: Black Cancer was created, edited, and produced by me, Jody Bury. Thank you so much, Franz, for sharing your story with us. To make sure that other Black Cancer stories become center to how we talk about cancer, rate, subscribe, and take a few minutes to leave a review wherever you find your podcast. Find us online at blackcancer.co and on Instagram at underscore black underscore cancer. Trauma comes with endless wisdom for ourselves and those around us. Tell someone you know about black cancer.